Welcome to Sky Team's People First with Morag Barrett. Welcome to this week's episode of People First. And I am honoured to have my friend and colleague Dory Clark with me this week. And Dory has been named one of the top 50 business thinkers by Thinkers 50. She is a keynote speaker and teaches executive education at Duke University. She is also the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Long Game, which I'm listening to on audiobooks right now, Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, and Stand Out, which was named the number one leadership book of the year by Inc. Magazine. A former presidential campaign spokeswoman, she frequently writes for the Harvard Business Review. So, Dory, welcome to People First. Hi, Morag. I'm so glad to be here with you. I am looking for the looking forward to the conversation. And as I said in the pre-show conversation, I have a bit of a book problem in that I'm audio listening to the long game. I have a reinventing you in a Kindle format, and then entrepreneurial you. In fact, I have it here. Look in hard copy. So at least I can show and brandish this one. But when we have them in the digital formats, it's like, well, what do I hold up? My phone. <laughs> this this is such such a modern problem. It's true. It is, but you appeal to all tastes. Therefore, whether you want to have Dory whispering to you in your in your ears, whether you like to cradle the book, either way, there's a there's an option for us. But before we dive into learning more about the long game, your career, etc., let's just go back to the origin story. So, way back when you're in elementary school, the teacher says, "Dory, what do you want to be when you grow up?" What was your answer back then? Well, what what I wanted to be actually was a spy. I really loved James Bond. I was so I was so into it. And so obviously I uh, have grown up and in fact not become a spy. I feel like I'd probably be a a kind of terrible spy. But uh but I have channeled that in other directions and so one of my great covid accomplishments, I did not in fact learn to bake sourdough, but uh but what I did do instead was I wrote a uh, I wrote a spy musical. I like to call it my sexy lesbian spy thriller musical. So That's I completed actually, that during COVID. Okay. So a rather un- a narrow niche there, but has it been performed? Have you had your opening night yet? <laughs> well, the the goal, Morag, is Broadway 2026. So we're we're work we're working toward it assiduously. Um, during COVID, of course, uh, production opportunities are fairly limited. So what we did instead was we created a 20 minute four song video demo, and mm-hmm. so that has moved forward. And we are hoping to we is is my my collaborator my composer collaborator and i uh, are hoping to move it forward and uh, in 2022 fingers crossed we want to try to stage a workshop production so we actually are semi-finalists for a grant right now that we're waiting to hear on so uh, we're hopeful we'll be able to to move it forward in some fashion wow with 2026 being the big debut, because I've got a whole wardrobe full of sequins and stuff, I can be there for the red carpet. You know? That's right. Get get ready now. <laughs> okay, so Spy. And now I'm thinking, oh, did you see the latest James Bond movie? What did you think of it? Oh, of course, of course. Yes, I, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. I have to say, overall, Daniel Craig is not my favorite Bond because I, I feel like, you know... Eh, I think he's a very good actor and he did something unique with it, which is great, but it is not archetypally Bondian in the way that, uh, that I liked. Um, mm. so 
I think uh, I think it'll be really interesting to see who they select next. But but so anyway, I, I admire that generally the Daniel Craig films. I mean, Quantum of Solace we're leaving aside because WTF. But uh, <laughs> but this this one was uh, was really good. I thought that was um, quite interesting. And yeah, I would I would say that I feel like uh, most most underrated Bond, Pierce Brosnan. It's uh, oh, not to say he was my mm. favorite. I, I have a soft spot for, um, even though it was terrible in so many ways, I, I just have a mm-hmm. soft spot for Roger Moore because I, I grew up with him. But I feel like Pierce Brosnan has been underrated by history. Um, I feel like Tim Dalton was the world's biggest disaster. I mean, that just did not go well at all. Um, I think Dan- yeah. Daniel Craig did, you know, d- did a good job and he, he brought some heft to it, even if he wasn't my style of Bond. See, I like, I agree, I, I can agree with this. It's a very controversial opening for people first. But yes, yeah, certainly the move from the Roger Moore, which had ended up being a little bit more, I don't know, jokey. Uh, I, I don't know. It was of its era, put it that way. Yes. And yes. Bond. I mean, that's the whole thing. And Daniel Craig is at least modernized, or the, the writing of the modern um, part of the franchise has at least updated some of the tropes that come with uh, James Bond. Okay, so from movie. And Broadway to Dorian, her many magnificent iterations that you have right now, and prolific author and writer. So not just of spy musicals, it's true. Not just of spy musicals, as tr- that is true. So, got you onto writing. What was that pivot point? Well, you know, writing was something that I was I was actually always interested in. I mean, uh, so, somewhere I uncovered. Uh, an early story, which in fact was a spy story. When I was like five years old, I, uh, I, you know, on my, on my family's typewriter, cause we didn't have computers <laughs> back then. I typed up a, um, a story about, uh, two brothers that were spies, uh, named Rex and Bill Bond. And they, uh, uncovered a secret, uh, drug shipment that was, uh, that, that was hidden in, sh- uh, a shipment of sheepskins. Really not sure where that came from, but that was an early literary effort. Um, but I always wanted to write books. I, I didn't know what kind. I didn't know if it was fiction or, or what have you, but it was always an aspiration. And so certainly when I went into business for myself uh, and realized, oh, you know, this is something that could be a valuable marketing tool. I really ought to think about it. Um, it, it became self-evident to me that, that writing a book was a course that I wanted to pursue. Mm-hmm. So you're now regularly featured in Harvard Business Review and many other outlets, but that wasn't the case from the start. And I know many people look at you, they look at me and they see the, the tip of the iceberg, the overnight success. So tell us a little bit about the journey and really the, the vision that you had in your mind when you started out that has allowed you to reach this tip of this version of the iceberg. Yeah, I'm glad to. Although before we do, Morag, I'm actually just curious. I'd love to hear the story about how you came to write your first book. What was that process like for you? <laughs> so my first book, Cultivate, came out of, I was talking about the concept. So the idea that our relationship ecosystem at work is not something that we are a victim of. It's something that we create through each conversation that we choose to have or don't. And so when we have allies, the best friends at work or the adversaries who might stab you in the back or it feels like they're stabbing you in the back, what can you do to diagnose the health of your relationships and start taking control? And why did I write it? I remember the moment I'd just come off stage having delivered a keynote on the concepts 
And um, somebody came up to me and go, well, where, when, where can I read more? I want to know more. You need to write the book. And it was like, oh, okay, I'll write the book. And as you know, birthing a book, and Eric Ruby and I are working on the sequel to Cultivate right now, I've got three sons. I will have three books. I think birthing three books is harder than birthing three sons. And so I wrote the book. And as soon as Cultivate hit the shelves, literally as soon as it hit the shelves, I kept getting people calling me going, this is great. When's the next one coming out? And I'm going, the ink isn't even dry on the first one, people. Pace yourself. People are so impatient. It's true. But then that's where the Future Proof Workplace came from, which I co-authored with Linda Sharkey. So it was because others were asking for more. And as you know, we're not scalable. There is only one of me, which in many ways can be a good thing. So this is an opportunity to amplify the voice and get it into people's hands that may otherwise not get to see me on a keynote stage. Yeah, so good. Thank you. I appreciate that. So when it came to, um, wait, what was the question? (laughs) (laughs) It was the essence. So the vision. So here you are, you're at the pinnacle of success from others who are looking in, you're contributing for HBR, you've got all these books behind you. Well, that must be easy. But what was it really like, the journey? And how did you set that destination when you first started? Ah, yes. Well, when I first started, I mean, the, the first thing that I wanted to do, and I, I certainly, uh, I, I see many folks, many colleagues and many clients have a similar experience um, to, to what I had and kind of had to learn from the hard way. What I really wanted was to write a book. Like I, I did not have some abiding desire to become a blogger. That was, that mm-hmm. was not the goal. Like that's not super sexy necessarily. And so I just wanted to write a book. And I wanted to get down to that. And it was a very frustrating and hard fought lesson for me that no, 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 before you are allowed, quote unquote, by the marketplace to write a book, you have to build your platform. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, you know, if you want to self publish, you can do whatever you want. But if you want to be commercially published, you have to essentially convince the publisher that you have de-risked yourself, that uh, that you have a built-in audience that will buy your book. That is what every publisher wants. And the way you can establish this is either you are just famous, like you're on Jersey Shore or something, <laughs> or uh, if you are in the business world, uh, typically it is that, okay, you have a really robust speaking practice, or you have a huge social media following, or you write for high profile publications. And that is a place where you can write about the ideas in your book and presumably encourage people to buy your book. So I had all these ideas for books and nobody wanted them. They really just weren't even interested at all because I needed to, I I, I was told, (laughs) I needed to kind of go back to the drawing board and, you know, somehow get famous, somehow get social proof to be able to do it. So I realized, you know, it was very frustrating. It was like, okay, I guess this will take longer than I thought. And I had to go back and start blogging. Uh, that for me, I mean, there's other ways you can do it. You could start a podcast or you could do videos or whatever, but I had been a print journalist earlier in my career. And so writing seemed like the, the lowest hanging fruit for me. So I was like, all right, I guess I'll figure out how to become a blogger for, for some of these places. So originally, it was a very sort of labor-intensive and somewhat demoralizing process. I 
realized correctly that the most efficient thing would be to reach out to friends who are already contributors for publications and see if they could help get me mm-hmm. in, you know, which is not, not a bad strategy. Uh, but so originally this was the mid 2000s. So something that was very hot at the time was the Huffington post. Uh, oh yes. Yeah. yeah. So I had a bunch of friends who wrote for them. And so I had to reach out to a lot of them to eventually try to find my way in. And, and finally, after some deal of effort, I got to start writing for Huffington post that was good. But what I realized was, you know, Huffington Post would publish business articles, but they're not a business publication. So mm-hmm. it wasn't exactly where I needed to be. So I thought, all right, I need some some other places. And I was pitching like a maniac, all these different uh, places, you know, trying trying to get in and frankly, not having very much success. I, you know, sometimes I'd get a response from an editor. Mostly I wouldn't. Um, mostly if I got one response, then it would kind of peter out after a Mm -hmm. while. So it it was not really happening, but this was really, I think for me, definitionally the place where, uh, where luck happened, you know, luck being preparation meets opportunity. I had been so busy pitching these publications and, you know, coming up with ideas and article ideas and stuff. I had lots of things ready if I could only get somebody to look at it Mm -hmm. around that same time I was living in Boston and I ended up selling my bike on Craigslist to a woman that, as it happened, worked for the Harvard Business Review. And she, oh. I wouldn't have known it necessarily, but she proactively mentioned it because she had looked me up online to sort of see who I was. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. You have a blog, don't you? And she's like, yes. And so she, and I had to follow up several times yeah. with her, but she was eventually willing to connect me with an editor. And that editor uh, was willing to start publishing my work. I, I love that story because I talk in Cultivate about the six degrees of separation. And I say, no, no, forget that. Well, six degrees of Kevin Bacon, it's two degrees of connection. When we're paying attention, you never know whether a chance encounter or that conversation is going to be the answer you've been looking for or certainly get you a step closer. And that story with the, the bike on Craigslist just underpins it and brings me to your latest book, The Long Game, which I'm listening to. Because as you have just articulated, it was exhausting, pitching all of these articles, getting the knockbacks. And you talk about networking and and influencing as being lonely, maddening, and unfulfilling. And it can feel like a waste of time. So when you're playing the long game, how do you stay in the game? Well, I think one of the key elements that's important is if we are constantly only focused on the end goal or the end state, we're probably going to be frustrated because it's going to take a while, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if I, if the only thing that I had cared about was getting a, you know, getting a book published, you know, I mean, I did want to have a book published, but if that was the only thing that was useful or meaningful to me, well, you know, I started the process where I was writing my first book proposal and trying to, you know, seriously make an effort to get published in 2009. And my book didn't actually come out until four and a half years later. So it, that was, it was a long period yeah. of time in between. But I, I think that what we need to do is to, first of all, try as best we can to get a more realistic sense from looking at others, researching others, talking to others what it actually takes, you know, like, like Mm -hmm. time-wise, like what is common, you know, what is normal for a process like this so that we can pace ourselves and not 
beat ourselves up or get angry. Like, why isn't this happening in six months? Well, you know, it doesn't happen in six months for anybody. So, you know, we got to <laughs> just ad- address reality. Um, but also to learn to find ways in the process to enjoy the process. And so just as one example, I'm always a big fan of killing multiple birds with one stone. And so one of the things that as it happened, you know, as we discussed, I, I had to do in order to win the book contract in order to build my platform was to be writing these blogs and these articles. Now that's something that viewed in one light might be like, Oh, what a hassle. I have to do this errand, you know, but actually a way that I made it interesting for myself was I started, um, one of the venues that I wrote for quite a lot between 2012 and 2015 was Forbes. And I ended up doing about 250 articles for them. And the vast majority of those articles were interviews with other business authors. And this was a way that I was really able to dramatically up-level my network and meet a lot Mm -hmm. of people was I was interviewing them for, you know, for Forbes, which, you know, they, they, first of all, they were more likely to say yes. They're like, okay, sure. Do I want to be in Forbes? Yeah. Why not? Um, so I was able to get meetings. I probably wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. I was able to spend time with people, learn from them, build a, a relationship. And so now, you know, so that was interesting for me, but now, you know, we're coming on, you know, close to a decade later with some of these relationships and they've actually become quite meaningful and, and substantive connections. Uh, you know, if you've known somebody for the, for a decade, even if it's casually, um, you know, yes. oftentimes, um, it's, it's something you can really lean on because they, uh, they know you, they have positive associations and you can build on that. Yeah. So the book, the long game, how to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world. I love it. And you talk more about this as well. And part of it, I, one of the messages I took away is just getting started, but often People, and I know I've been there too, we're all so busy. We go for that mythical, well, I'll do it after the holidays. I'll do it in the new year. I'll do it when. So how do we start creating what you describe as white space, just even breathing room in our schedules to start shifting and changing direction? Yeah, it's it's true. I literally just this morning, Morag, I woke up and there was an, an email from a colleague of mine named Laura Vanderkam. Uh, Laura is someone that I, I uh, respect and have mentioned in some of my books. She's sort of a time management expert, productivity expert. And she raised what I think is a great point in uh, an email that, that came out today, where she was saying, Look, a lot of us, of course, this is kind of a cultural thing, have our New Year's resolutions. Oh, starting January 1st, I'm going to XYZ. And she said, the the surest, you know, sort of reality check about this is, you know, January 1st is not like some mythical time, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like your life is going to be so radically different on January 1st. She said, what you really ought to do is if you're thinking of having something be the goal for January 1st, ask yourself what you could do to make it possible today. If the goal is like, oh, every single day, every or every single work day, I'm gonna go to the gym starting January 1st. Well, ask yourself, what could you do to make it to the gym today? Because if you can't figure out an answer for that, you probably won't be able to figure out an answer for January 1st either. Okay. And because, you know, it's an artificial construct, literally today could be the day that you start. And so I think part of it is just, 
um, overcoming some of the obstacles we put in our, our own way about, oh, the, myth, the mythical future, it really can start today if we want it to start today. So that is an important realization. But above and beyond that, um, a way that I like to think about creating more white space, which as you allude to is, hey, really takes up in many ways, like the first third of the book, because I, I think it's so essential for us to kind of clear the decks more effectively when it comes to um, even just having having the tiniest bit of room mm -hmm. to engage in long-term thinking. So this is a battle, Morag, that is won at the edges. We often assume, oh, I somehow have to have a, you know, a, a sabbatical, or I need to have a week off, or I need to have a day with blah, 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 blah. You know, I think we can actually make much more progress, demonstrable progress, even by systematically finding ways to take back, to claw back an extra 30 to 60 mm -hmm. minutes per week. And one sort of very low-hanging fruit example that I have of this is I have, and I think most of us probably do, I have a lot of examples of people who either because they're just not thinking about it or they haven't formed a concrete agenda or they might want to sneak something past you, they often will reach out and be super vague. Oh, hey, Dory, I want to talk to you about something. When are you next free for a half an hour? And uh, yes, back in my <laughs> early naive days, I'd be like, oh, well, if they want to talk to me about something, it must be important. Yeah, oh, the need to be needed. Yeah. Like, yes. Yes. And so I'd be like, oh, well, I guess, okay, I, I, I have 30 minutes free on Thursday, blah, blah, blah. And we do it. And I would somehow be stunned because the thing they wanted to talk to me about was either irrelevant, <laughs> not at all useful, could have been done in five minutes, something I never would have agreed to if I had known what it was. And so what I now do just systematically is I, I won't even say push back because that's not even right. I inquire. I say, oh, Morag, I'd love to be helpful Seek if I can. Um, what is it you wanted to talk about? And you force them to tell you. They should have told you right up front, but if they didn't, you know what? You make them do it because I will now never meet with somebody if I do not know what it is about. So you, you saw me stand back because it was like the, with the penny drop. I'd get this every time because you and I had a conversation when I was in New York recently about how do I say no? And of course, my need to be needed gene is if I say no, then I'm letting people down. And what I have off camera here are three sticky notes, which are my three priorities for 2022, which includes birthing this new book, which is, you know, writing it is hard enough, but getting it ready to ta -da, appear on the shelves October 2022 coming to a book retailer near you wow, um, yes. is a big deal. So I've got those three things and I have them in my eye line because again, your advice was there, does it help me achieve those? And I love the fact that you just positioned for me, the epiphany was, it's not push back when I'm asking questions. It's actually a pull forward. It's the inquiring more so that you can get, I can give an informed alternative or an informed no, because does it help also both of us? Right, so right. Oh. All right. You're so, welcome. I, uh, I can't wait to finish the rest, the rest of the book. And you talk in the, in the book, and this mine is all again about the importance of relationships, three levels of networking. And you're explaining about horizon relationships. So tell us a little bit more about the three levels of relationships and the concept that you, you created there in terms of the horizon. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, most people are are familiar with, you know, what what I will as a shorthand call good networking and bad networking, right? <laughs> the the bad networking is short-term networking, which is I need a thing. Maybe they can give me the thing. <laughs> and, and people feel like totally used and it is like really yeah. weird and creepy and no one likes it, right? So we know we know that's bad. People, you know, people sometimes do it anyway, but it's bad. Um, what is of course much better is long-term networking, which is where it's not like I need a thing right now, but I think you're an interesting person. I think maybe, maybe we could do something sometime. Like, let's see, let, let me get to know you. And, you know, that's sort of the slow burn of like, great, let's, let's be friends. Let's hang out. Maybe, you know, maybe something will happen in the future. That's great. Good networkers do that. But the part that I think is systematically overlooked is what I call infinite horizon networking. Mm -hmm. And this is networking with people who on the surface literally have nothing in common with you and it looks like they couldn't be helpful to you at all. <laughs> okay. Because I think that honestly, even good networkers often, you know, understandably prioritize relationships with people that are in their industry or that are in their company. It's like, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's, uh, that could be useful. And that's true. But the problem is we're coming from the frame right now of who we are today and where we are. I mean, if I were trying to be, you know, so clever, so strategic about my networking, like you live in, you live in Colorado, right? Mm -hmm. Warren? Yeah. yeah. So you could say, you know what, I'm only going to network with people in Colorado because that's, what's going to be more useful to me. Well, fantastic. You can have the best network in Colorado, but one day something happens, something changes. You move to New York city you're kind of out of luck if your entire network is in Colorado. All of a sudden, that random person who lives in New York City that you met 10 years ago and just happened to stay in touch with, they become the linchpin of your new network. You couldn't have predicted it, but it becomes really powerful. And the same thing is true for people who end up changing careers or mm -hmm. you know, somehow by meeting a random person in a different industry or different geography, they become exposed to ideas that, you know, oh my God, your industry does that? We could apply that. And you would never get it otherwise. So sometimes the most transformational relationships can be the infinite horizon ones that seem irrelevant on the surface. So I'll give you a personal example of that. And it will be Dr. Linda Sharkey, who is now a very good friend and colleague. Because when Cultivate first came out, I got invited to an author summit being hosted in Atlanta. And I went and I didn't know anybody. And as much as I do the big stage thing, et cetera, small talk and meeting strangers absolutely terrifies me. And so I am coming down after the first day. And I remember sitting down with a group and I interjected. And I thought I'm going to be bold. And I sat in the middle of them only to realize they were actually having a business meeting in, in the hotel area. So I got up a little awkward and instead of scurrying back to my room, I thought I'll give it another go. And I could see Linda's back. I'd only sat next to her in a breakout session. She was at the, uh, the bar chatting to a gentleman. I've got no idea who it was. So I walk up and I go, hello. And then both she and Marshall Goldsmith turned to look at me. And of course, in my head, I'm going, oh, my goodness, what have I just done? And we have a quick interjection, but they are also in the middle of a, a, a big a big conversation. So we have some niceties and I leave. I survived. And it was two years later, Linda calls me out of the blue to ask me to co-author the Future Proof Workplace 
because of that interjection. It just stayed in her memory. Unbelievable. It is. And then it continues because, of course, now being part of 100 Coaches, the organization, the group that you and I are part of with Marshall Goldsmith, it has all come back full circle. And so I tell people, you've got to have courage. You've just got to have curiosity in others because you never know where it's going to lead, either to help them or to help you or to help us. So it it is amazing, those chance encounters. What a great story. Thanks for sharing that, Morag. All right. So last thing, spoiler alert time then, because I haven't got to this chapter yet, but it's piqued my curiosity. What am I going to learn when I rethink failure? Yes. So, so important here. So obviously, um, despite the the kind of Silicon Valley mantra of, you know, failure is good, fail fast, you know, et cetera, et cetera. When it actually plays out in real life, people don't like to fail. We can pretty safely <laughs> say that, that it would be much nicer if we succeeded every single time. That would feel much better uh, for, for our egos and our effort. But also, realistically, we know that that is not the case. So when I think about rethinking failure, the the premise that I like to use, I mean, a lot of the long game, honestly, is an exercise in applying strategies that are that are kind of enterprise level strategies to our own lives. Because I think there are a lot of parallels. And the things that we may be comfortable doing on a day-to-day basis at work we somehow fail to make the transition in applying them in our own lives. And a key example is the lean startup methodology, which mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the tech world, but I, I think also in many other places in the business world over the past decade, people have come to realize like, oh yeah, actually it is a very good idea not to build out an entire product, you know, service, mm-hmm. make it this big, fancy, perfect thing, and then unleash it on the market only to discover that no one wants it. Much better to test the premise first before Mm -hmm. you fully build it out. And so when it comes to rethinking failure, in a lot of ways, what I like to think about it is is this. If you were to go to a casino and lose $100,000, that would stink. That would Mm -hmm. not be good. But if you were to go to a casino and place 10 bets and you lose $10, have you failed? Have you failed, Greg? Yeah. I don't think so. You're like, whatevs. <laughs> yeah. I, I, try, I tried it, you know, didn't work, you know, could have, but, you know, whatever. And I think that if we can get good at finding ways to place small bets and to identify for whatever mm-hmm. we're trying to test, whether it's, do I want to live in this place? Would I like this career? Oh, you know, should I actually launch this new service? If we can identify small ways to test the premise it actually does not matter if it doesn't work because if a bet is small enough, failure is literally an inappropriate term to use when applied to it. If you lose a dollar, no one is going to say, oh gosh, you failed. It's just, you know, okay, you tried something, it didn't work, no big deal. Reminds me of the Edison quote, wasn't it? The the money hundreds of thousands of times or ways you tried to create the light bulb and uh, being positioned, though I just found the ways that didn't work. And so it is repositioning it. I love that. But that's one of the ways that you overcome that lonely, maddening, unfulfilling slog that it takes to get to success is to recognize the small wins and identify the next baby step and keep going. Because then you get to look back and realize, oh, my goodness, there's a whole iceberg underneath me. And how do I now pay it forward um, for others? 
So true. So what's next then? What's the next book? Just been nominated for Thinkers 50. Again, false horizon. You reach the summit, but there's another one. So what's next for you then, Dory? Well, in the in the spirit, Morag, of living out the long game to be to be meta, um, I have committed I am not going to write another business book for the next five years. I am going to continue marketing this. I'm going to continue spreading the message about this because I think that we often, I include myself in this, give up too soon on promoting our efforts. I mean, obviously, you know, you give a good push during the launch, mm-hmm. but then it's sort of like, oh, it'll take care of itself after that. No, no, it doesn't. There, no. There's a million books published a year. You need to keep nurturing that. And mm-hmm. so I have a five-year project, a five-year campaign to uh, get the long game out there. So what's next is uh, is continuing to work that program. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, on that note, then, how can our listeners and our viewers learn more about you and the work and the word that you're spreading through the long game and your other books? Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, uh, if folks want to, of course, they can they can check out the uh, the book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Uh, and if they'd like a little taste or to think more deeply about how to apply some of these principles to your own life and your own career, there is a free long game self-assessment. And folks can get it at doryclark.com slash the long game. I will be going there next. Thank you, Dory. I'll make sure all of that information is in the show notes. I truly appreciate you and thank you for your time today. Thank you, Morag. Always a treat to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining Morag today. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you learned something worth sharing, share it. Cultivate your relationships today when you don't need anything before you need something. Be sure to follow Sky Team and Morag on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any ideas about topics we should tackle, interviews we should do, or if you yourself would like to be on the show, drop us a line at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again for joining us today. And remember, business is personal and relationships matter. We are your allies.